Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and actor. And I'm Caroline Sita, and florals for spring, groundbreaking. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries featuring an actor we love. And today, it is my turn! You're in the driver's seat, Ned! Yes, we're switching seats. I, I was explaining this to a friend and I compared it to how I think it was Andy Richter was sort of like a constant guest on maybe Conan O'Brien's show. Mm-hmm. He he would you know he worked for the show but he would always sit in the chair and that's that's what I felt like I was doing for our 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 cycle one our Christian Bale cycle and now I'm behind the hosting desk and I'm a little nervous. I think it'll be I like this as a change of pace. I as a person who craves control but hates responsibility, I find mm. this both stressful and very relieving. So Okay. <laughs> nice. Yes. You uh you are relieved of responsibility, but you have the horrifying knowledge that with that newfound responsibility I might do just anything. Anything can happen. Um so we just finished up our Christian Bale cycle. How'd you feel about it? I thought it was a lot of fun to do. I mean this whole, you know, starting a podcast thing was new for us. I feel mm-hmm. like I was really peak neurotic during the entire starting of it, but we got those recorded. I'm feeling good about it, and I'm excited to sort of see where things go from here, and maybe when we have actors that I'm not, <laughs> I don't have quite as much personal baggage with as I do with Christian Bale. That's true, and we're going we're gonna to transition now. This was my choice for who we're going to talk about for Cycle 2, and I agree, it's not someone that I have at all the same kind of deeply personal relationship that you had with Christian Bale. Just someone who I am excited every time she shows up in a movie because I think she pretty much always knocks it out of the park. And I'm speaking of Emily Blunt, our second actor. Another Brit. Another Brit. Yeah. We may uh, have, in some of our advanced planning, we may have realized we have a slight preference for British actors, inadvertently realized. There will be more in our future. Hint, hint. But um, but today we're going to talk about Emily Blunt and the very first film that I wanted us to discuss with Emily Blunt is certainly the first film I saw her in, um, a film that introduced her to, I think, a lot of people in a mainstream Hollywood setting. Uh, and she's not the star, but I think she does really walk away with some of her scenes. The Devil Wears Prada from oh, yeah. 2006. Um so, to get us up to the Devil Wears Prada in the Emily Blunt timeline, she is born in England. She has a stuttering problem as a child. She's a stutterer, like our like our president, for which a, a teacher suggests maybe acting would be a sort of a remedy for that uh, challenge that she faces. And she gets into acting. I think it sounds like doesn't intend to do it as a career. Well, some of these profiles say she sort of found herself in a production of The Royal Family with Judy Dench when she was 18 years old, despite not wanting to pursue You know, as one does. Yeah, oh, I just, just accidentally found myself in a you stumble <laughs> production in backwards. with Judy Dench. Yes, now, there is there must be more into that. I'm not quite sure how she locked that down. She Maybe she had some sort of connection. There's also an anecdote somewhere in one of her profiles about meeting the Queen 
at an event with her grandfather, who was a World War II general. So she may not be, you know, uh, strictly pulling herself up by her bootstraps. I don't know. Somehow <laughs> this is connected. But she she acts in a production of The Royal Family with Judy Dench, who sort of takes her under her wing in that way in which I think when you first step into a professional acting world, I remember, I mean, for me, I, I went to college, as we discussed several times, and we'll discuss again today, Northwestern, Go Cats, Devorce Prada. But when you first go out into the theater world, when you're fresh out of school, and you're suddenly working with true grown-up adults, I feel like mm-hmm. you're always sort of on the hunt for a mentor, and or at least someone kind to explain to you how everything works. Otherwise, you're just going to sort of, I don't know, if you're me, flop around nervously. So she had Judy Dench and uh, received some sort of mentorship during there. And it's only five years later that she is doing Devil Wears Prada. That's a pretty short, pretty short span of time, pretty early in her career. She does a handful of other films. The the only one that I, I think, heard of before would be My Summer of Love, which is kind of a lesbian drama i think have you seen that Mm-mm. no i have not no i think that like you said devil wears prada is really my introduction to her yeah so she's uh the story of her getting cast in devil wears prada which i i read in a i think it was variety did that oral history a 10, a ten years gone in mm-hmm, 2016 mm-hmm. where she was so she's 23 she's auditioning for aragon um doing that sort classic of... film that we all <laughs> well, it's, it's, love and remember it's funny the way that this story involves her getting passed over for aragon and then being fair game for director david frankel of devil wears prada and of course this is how it works sometimes she lost the role to sienna Guillory, or as some would call her who yeah <laughs> so um it is a case where you're like oh how sad i've lost out on the big blockbuster franchise that would surely make me famous and i'll do this little like workplace comedy yeah. And then it's like, oh, that workplace comedy becomes like, you know, this massive cultural touchstone. And it literally no one remembers that Aragon existed. Even exists. Yes. No, that one really didn't <laughs> didn't make an impact in this way. But at the time she's trying, she's uh doing like callback after callback for the elf princess in Aragon. And I think the story goes, as she's already late for a flight back to London, an agent or a producer says, quick, quick, do a tape for this other project. For Devil Wears Prada. And so she flies back to London. And David Frankel, the director of Devil Wears Prada, who participated a lot in this oral history, says, I saw the tape and I called her up. Her mom didn't answer the phone. Or her mom answered the phone and said, she's out, but you can try her herself. So he calls her and she's at a, like a, as she describes it, a divey club in London. And she takes his call in the bathroom and he's like, I would have cast you off the tape, but the studio wants to see you one more time. Can you do what you did, but dress the part more? Because she'd been in, like, flip-flops and blue jeans. So I guess she does that and ends up locking down this role, also called Emily, in The Devil Wears Prada. Originally been written as an American, but she plays it. And suddenly is in there with Anne Hathaway, who was not quite a star in the way Mm -hmm. that she would be after this film, but... That was a name I knew already. I mean, I'd yeah. seen Princess Diaries. She was Diary. like a teen. I feel like her reputation was like teen star because she'd done Princess Diaries and that really bad Ella Enchanted sure, remake. Sure, So I feel like this was her first role where she was sort of playing an adult 
woman as opposed to, you know, a high school kid or yes yeah property perhaps my parents wouldn't have known who she was but i was like oh it's mia thermopolis but oh yeah um, i mean princess diaries is a formative film certainly for me yeah so anne hathaway is she's 24 when she makes devil wears prada emily blunt is 23 and yet i think it really works in those first scenes you see you feel like Emily Blunt is that high status person. Although we can we can pick apart all of the delicious status relationships in this film. But we'll talk, I guess, about the impact of Devil Wars Prada. What are what's what are your first memories of this film? Did you see it in theaters? I don't think I did. I, I feel like both with this movie and maybe with Emily Blunt in general, I almost like just feel like they've always existed. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I can't remember a time before I had seen this movie. Sure. Even though I was not super young when it came out. But I I just, to me, this is a movie that's just constantly on TV. And I've seen bits and pieces of a million times. And Emily Blunt is an actress that's just always been around and always been amazing. Like, I, for some reason, I don't think of these things as things that, like, came into being. <laughs> yeah. When I was, like, a conscious teenager. I tend to be a person who really likes, like, girl movies, movies aimed at girls, Mm -hmm. that, like, genre of film. But there's this movie, 13 Going on 30, and Mean Girls, where I feel like I never connected as strongly to them as other people that were around my age did. As lots of people clearly did. Yeah. These movies, those three that you movie, they're they're really beloved with some... Yeah. people of our generation and i don't know if i was just slightly too old because i think of my for my like definitive girl movies as like legally blonde clueless other ones i'm not thinking of now so i don't know if it was like an age thing or whatever so devil wars prada is a movie i've seen a million times that i really like but i would not put in my like top tier of favorite movies or even favorite movies in this sort of genre if that makes sense. What about yes, you? Certainly. I, I think I saw it in theaters. Again, I, I it's hard to trace back to memories. I would have been 16. And I'm thinking, was this movie really important to my friend, Nick Scottarossi, one of my best friends in high school at the time? Or did, it, he, just, did he just really latch onto it later on? Um, it is hard to remember what it was like to experience it. Although I will say, I remember... Emily Blunt making an impression as a character, but her being the only person that I had no prior reference for. Mm-hmm. She was the only person that I, you know, just only existed as this character. And I have to say, if it weren't for some other films coming along later, I would have just assumed kind of was this person. Yeah. I always find that fascinating. The first time I see an actor... Because there are some actors who their, like, skill is almost like playing themselves or embodying Mm -hmm. a version of themselves. And so they do give similar performances across films, which I think can be great. Like, there's nothing bad about that school of acting, but that's, like, one school of acting. The Jack Black school of acting, maybe. Yeah. Jack Black acting. Uh, Yeah. Or even, like, the Cary Grant school of acting. You know what I mean? Like, to some extent, I think he's he fits into that mold, too. But then there's other actors who feel much more transformative. But the first time I see an actor... For some reason, I always tend to assume that whatever I first see them playing, they're playing themselves. Mm-hmm. And then 
I feel this way so strongly as a recent example about Lakeith Stanfield. Oh. Who on Atlanta is sort of just like this really relaxed, like hippie-ish kind of stoner guy. Is a great character performance. But I'm like, okay, that must be what he's like. And then he goes on and gives all these amazing performances that are totally different. I'm like, never mind. Obviously, Caroline, he's an actor that was acting. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Emily Blunt maybe in this movie had a similar thing where it's, like you said, easy to, to... assume that this is maybe the type of performance she's going to give in future movies too yes which does not go on to be the case and it's interesting you know to profile her i guess she's not much younger than christian bale but she's had about half as much time in hollywood as he has Mm -hmm. and much less than some other actors certainly the meryl streeps of the world and yet and yet she has in her time I mean, let's say that this is really the moment in which she breaks into the Hollywood scene. So this is 15 years ago. And in that 15 years, she's really, I think, established her ability to handle a broad number of roles and mm-hmm. personalities, which is one of the reasons why I thought she was a good candidate for my first role-calling cycle. And uh, we will get into some of those other types of personalities. But she embodies this role so flawlessly, I think, and does does so much with it i mean it is a true breakout performance yes that i think not always actors don't always have sometimes it's like they're getting a slow start and they're popping up in little things here and there but this is even though it's a relatively small i mean we were joking when we originally when you pitched the idea of doing blunt and we were talking about doing this film it's like ostensibly maybe this should have been like a Merrill miniseries or an Anne Hathaway miniseries but I think we both pretty instantly agreed like it made sense to sort of like give this movie to her because it does feel like such a definitive breakout defining performance even if it's not like the biggest part of the movie itself yes and I'll be interested in the future on this podcast and continuing to discuss movies where somebody gives such a distinctly memorable performance with such relatively limited screen time. I mean, I'm sure she's not I'm sure she's not on screen for more than 20 minutes of this film. Yeah, There's so if that, much even. That, yeah, if that. And and yet her her character Emily is so she just plays such a I think a, a thematically important role. And also makes an excellent part of this little triangle, or mm-hmm. or diamond if you count Tucci, you know. But the the four sort of figures in this fashion world all in interplay with each other, and I think she is just she gets so much mileage out of her lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. The way that she, the way she just like squeezes little little like multiple punchlines out of a single sentence. God, what is there? Some line she says early on where she kind of laughs at her, her own yeah, joke. Something I about took a note was... on the exact same thing. It's where she is. She's like she tells Anne Hathaway, Andy. She's like, go pick up these skirts, and and Andy's like, now. And she's like, what? Do you have a pride commitment? Do you have a, a horrible skirt convention you have to go to? <laughs> and she like laughs at what she says. I took a note about that because I was like, that's so funny to be the type of person that laughs at your own joke. Yes. <laughs> she's like trying to be Miranda Priestly with the put down, but she's like not as cool. So she's sort of like nerdily laughing at her own joke too. Absolutely. And I think that you're hitting on something that I really only became clear in my mind on this viewing, because I have to say, maybe it's just because of not having the habit of watching movies on TV. I do not have a similar experience to yours where I've seen bits and pieces of this movie dozens of times 
I saw it in 2006. I probably watched it at least once, maybe around college times, 2010. And I think it's been a very long time since I've seen this. So so it was a totally, it was filled with surprises. I totally forgot about certain elements and characters of it, although certain images had definitely stuck in my mind. And there are, of course, iconic Meryl line deliveries that are constantly making the rounds on social media and being brought back into my life. Obviously, I know the whole Cerulean monologue pretty well. Mm-hmm. But there are all these little moments that I hadn't noticed. And and the thing that really struck me about the character of Emily that you just sort of mentioned is how much she is kind of this little offshoot copycat of what Meryl Streep's Miranda Priestley is doing that you have this incredible strength and callousness, emotional callousness and sense of status and hierarchy. I mean, status is actually more the word than strength, um, which it's it's funny because I just happened upon this this Emily Blunt quote earlier today. I think it's a mistake to label female characters as strong because they have a brain and they know how to bring, string a sentence together and they have an opinion. These are the women I like to hang out with. She's sort of saying you would never you would never uh, call a George Clooney character strong. It would just be sort of assumed yeah. that he was strong. So yeah, oh so, yeah, it's great that George Clooney's playing so many strong male characters in <laughs> exactly, Hollywood. <laughs> exactly, you wouldn't say that. So, but I do think um, impossibly high status like god tier high status is what miranda Priestley is like walking around looking at people like their aunts and you can see that the character of emily who's been in her world for a long time and unlike anne hathaway's andy doesn't have doesn't have any sort of uh condescension towards that world she just embraces it and she all of her mannerisms are built like they are emulating the way that Miranda will just walk by and you know obliterate you with a with a with a some sort of cutting remark except that hers are so like halting and clunky and you know she's when she gets a good one she sort of tickles herself with it yeah what i think so good about both the writing and the performance is how much pride Emily takes in being the first assistant. Mm-hmm. And like that just immediately from the way she starts describing that role, you understand the entire hierarchy of like Runway Magazine. And it's like, okay, she spent year like a year grueling as the second assistant. And now that she has this power, like she's going to lord it over Andy. And there's a part where she's like, um, I get 20 minutes for lunch and you get 15. And you can just <laughs> tell that the fact that she gets those five extra minutes is the like the most glorious thing she could ever imagine. Yeah. And it really fills you in on, you know, ultimately they're doing very similar jobs. These are not, you know, five extra minutes is not that big of a deal. But they, in they this sit at world, identical desks on either side yeah. of the door. Yeah. But in this world, it's like, okay, if you are the one that gets the code and I don't have to get the code anymore. And like, the, I am now, like, she really is... It's like within the stat within the whole hierarchy of runway, she is really like low on the totem pole, but within this little specific hierarchy of uh you know the ass- first assistant second assistant, she is the queen of mm-hmm. that entire world. Yes, and it it shows that you know she's completely bought in on this entire world. Whereas you have 
you have Andy as this sort of, uh, you know, every person cipher who's like, oh, so ridiculous. Oh, but I like this part. Ah, she starts to go into that. But you have Emily has no perspective on that world. And and as a result, she's so just like exquisitely unstable living in it. Yeah. But she's but she totally yeah. sees herself as, you know, moving along a path in a way that works for her. And just trying to eliminate any sort of obstacles in that. And, you know, always talking to Andy of like, if you, if this, if this goes wrong for you, then it goes wrong for me. And I can't have that. I love the moment when Andy says, wish me luck. And she says, no, shan't. <laughs> I really like that too. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think that there, it's like not that hard to imagine. You know, I don't know if this is the greatest movie ever made, but I think it's easy to imagine a much lesser version of this movie where the comedy is just a little flatter or, or more simplistic in a way. Like, there's lines that become so much funnier because of the way Emily Blunt is delivering them or because, of, you know, all of the cast is great. But, like, that whole little monologue about how she's on a diet where she just doesn't eat, but she'll... <laughs> If she's about to faint, she eats a cube of cheese. Like, <laughs> within that little dot. Like, it's easy to just, I don't know, to, to imagine, like, a sitcom version of this that's like, oh, great, well, I don't eat. And then if I get hungry, I eat cheese. And it's just, like, not as funny. But the, yeah. like, little nuances of the pride she takes in it and, like, tossing it off but, like, being excited to talk about it. Like, there's so much character building goes into what could just be like a tossed off joke and i think that's this that's like why these lines stick with people because of how many layers these actors are you know putting into them yeah i think you're right that the cast does a lot of work of pulling out what is what is good and what is brilliant and nuanced in the script and it also seems like the script does a really good job of pulling out what is brilliant and nuanced in this story you wrote a fantastic column about this for the AV Club. Uh, Thank your, you. I was reading comedy. <laughs> it's so. funny because I reread it today and I was like, "Oh, I do not think this was well written." But oh, thank really? You for saying that, yeah. Oh, I love I, uh, it. Yeah, I, <laughs> thank I remember you. <laughs> it very clearly from when you wrote it, and, and yeah, yeah. I write a, a column about. It's called "When Romance Met Comedy." It's about the romantic comedy genre. I sort of do each each week, every other week, a column about a new film, and I sort of looked at this one as. An example of a movie that's not actually a romantic comedy, first and foremost, but definitely has the aesthetics of a romantic comedy, and so therefore sort of like gets lumped into that genre and sort of parsing the differences of that. And anyway, that was, yeah, what the the column was supposed to be about. And it, well, <laughs> readers, think, you can decide how well I achieved that. As just one reader, I think you, but a biased one, I, I, I do think you get into some really interesting points in there of how movies that look and feel a certain way i mean you talk a lot about how there is a feeling you know big city pop music bright colors clean montages that make something feel like a rom-com and then it gets sort of discussed in a mainstream male-dominated media criticism world as being essentially fluffy but it's clear that everybody working on this movie was really interested in saying, in not doing the fluffy version of it, in pursuing, pursuing, like, the sort of nuance of it all. I mean, so the the fact that I think you mentioned in there, which I was reminded of recently, is that there were several several drafts of the script 
maybe four or so that were hewed a little closer to the book itself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's based on a book by somebody who I think only briefly worked as the assistant to Anna Wintour from Vogue. So it's sort of like a, a fictionalized, maybe even like revenge. I haven't read the book, but like a more of a revenge painting Miranda as just a villain. I think that that's the vibe of the book. Yeah. And then they tried to take it in different directions. I recall for the maybe it was a producer or maybe it was the director who's saying, you know, the the book, the, the third act of the book is basically just like a series of increasingly humiliating slam dunks on Miranda. And then at the end, it's like, got her, got that bitch who runs Prada or who runs, uh, runs fictional runway, runway magazine um, and wears Prada. But they do a better job structurally with this movie although i do think it is most successful in its in its first act i think Mm -hmm, the introduction to the world is really really fun and some of the dialogue in that part is just so so good and so well delivered yeah Um, yeah i completely agree i think that my favorite parts of this movie are there's a whole segment that's really just andy's first day and mm-hmm. it is where she's wearing the, like, cerulean sweater that then becomes the basis for that monologue. But it just – this movie captures so well just, like, what it's like to work in an office, which I've done, you know, at multiple points in my life. So there's so there's so many parts of this that I just find so relatable. Like, that fear when you have to answer your first phone call. Mm-hmm. And then later it cuts to, um, you know, Andy answering the phone. It's the same person. And it's, like, a very casual thing for her. Yeah. But it's such a good juxtaposition of, like, everything that's so stressful about your first day on a new job. And you're like, do I bring a notebook into this meeting? Do I need to write this down? Like, what's what are the duties expected of me? And, like, I just love how well it captures all of that stress that I think sometimes movies will skip over that stuff. Certainly, like, a lot of movies are, you know, a rom-com with, like, a secondary workplace plot. But the romance is the focus. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, the opposite, where it's first and foremost a workplace comedy dramedy with then like a little bit of romance personal life stuff on the side yeah and i think you're right that it does a really good job of of delving into those dynamics that i mean i haven't had uh the office working experience i recognized a lot of things from my experience working in restaurants Mm -hmm. um it was definitely in a restaurant where i had my most toxic bosses and i definitely recognize things and it's it's sort of ironic because in this film you have uh nate the boyfriend and he he works in a restaurant and that shows that he's kind of like a discerning blue collar guy who would never Mm -hmm. get caught up in any of that and i'm like yeah but it's bullshit because people get so wrapped up in restaurants restaurants are over demanding on your time restaurants are filled with toxic leadership yeah not all percent not all of them i have i now work at a restaurant where i like my management but but the idea that he wouldn't fully get a demanding world where you have to work insane hours it's like yeah, oh, they needed, yeah. If they needed to give him a different job if, if it was supposed to be a bigger contrast between what their two worlds were. Yeah, he's like, oh, you're coming home late. Oh, you missed my birthday. Well, yeah, that's bullshit. That's exactly <laughs> what restaurant life is like. They don't have free time. Anyway, uh, but the scene, it's it's funny because some of the early Miranda scenes are, I guess they read as horrible boss stuff, but I think they do a good job. And this is part of the the script humanizing her. And I, I understand that a lot of things, a lot of these things came at Meryl's direction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
at her sort of saying, well, I want to bring out this thing. I, I think if we added some lines here, it will show show a little bit more about why the work they're doing here is a legitimate pursuit and why Miranda deserves respect for this. There was also a quote from, I think this was a David Frankel quote in the same oral history that I'm going to get it wrong, but it was along the lines of, I think we should be grateful for excellence. I don't know why excellent people have to be nice. Mm-hmm. And you get that, I think, in the beginning, because in the first few scenes, it's clear that, you know, Andy has this total uh, disdain for the whole fashion world. And it's one of those things when people are appraising this movie, it's a nuance it's interesting to get into because the things that the the arc where she is getting more and more wrapped up in this life and it's supposed to say like, oh, she's losing track of her own life. Oh, she's completely becoming engulfed by her boss. Or also her just learning to appreciate something that yeah. I think the movie recognizes and I as a viewer feel is worthwhile. This whole fashion world. It does feel like the movie almost does too good of a job selling you on the fashion world as a valuable part of culture. Like that's mm-hmm. what that famous Cerulean sweater monologue is about. It's like you you really can't you can't really be a person that's exempt from this in the way that you think you are because this is just ultimately part of being a human being. <laughs> like yeah. wearing clothing is as our society has been structured, part of being a human being. Um and so I don't know. You, just because it's sort of like a feminine pursuit, you can't like deny that it's part of culture. And the movie sells that so well. And then at the end, when it sort of has to be like, yes, but ultimately the industry sort of was starting to corrupt Andy, so it's good she left. You're like, was it corrupting her? It didn't seem <laughs> like there's a part. She has a line where she's like, I abandoned my friends and family for this. And I'm like, did you? It seemed like you went to your friend's art gallery showing. Like you, yeah, you missed your boyfriend's birthday, but. It seemed like reasonable things. Yeah, grown up. She didn't seem like she had fully abandoned her principles and community to have this job. No. And, okay, so this is getting into this, like, a a 15 years later reappraisal. We will hardly be the first people on the internet to observe a lot of the conflict in this is coming from just these guys who are demanding that women be, I don't know, more mediocre or just, you know, we have we have the sort of famously vilified on Twitter character of Nate, mm-hmm. who I remembered that he wants her not to get wrapped up in her job. And I was like, okay, I know that, you know, it's bad to stand in the way of your friend's ambition. But also, you know, when I was in a really toxic job, I remember having a conversation with my friend Ray, and he's like, you got to get out of there, man. And that was, I really appreciate that. So I was sort of misremembering that as being Nate's only offense, when in fact, he is basically a tool from start to finish, sort of constantly criticizing her. I mean, his first his first line is sort of like making fun of her for being unfashionable. And I don't know, it's the the, the irony that at the end, like, she goes back to him, it kind of seems, I think that's implied. And what he's doing is advancing his career. And it's like, his career is fine. I'm always debating whether or not the implication... I guess it's supposed to be open-ended. Like, they could get back together. They could get back together. He's also moving to Boston. I'm like, they're not gonna... They're gonna be long distance? Like, no. Yeah, I don't know. How close are Boston and New York? I don't know. I'm from the the Midwest. Midwest. I never remember. (laughs) Yeah, we we don't know how to say... My understanding is actually on the East Coast. They can go between... Oh, everything's like 30 minutes away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But who knows? Anyway, but you also have... 
I hadn't noticed or I hadn't remarked before on the fact that the only time you see Miranda's husband, mm-hmm. he's doing the same thing. He's like yeah. grousing to her that she made him look dumb by, by I don't know, standing him up at dinner or something or making him wait for a while. And yeah, then you have, what's his name? The mentalist, Simon Baker. Yeah. Who just is like, similar to Nate, basically is sort of always trying to maneuver Andy towards sex with like every single conversation that he's in. And I guess in the end, like his siding with the other possible editor is Jacqueline. his offense. With Jacqueline Follet. That's his offense. But I'm like, this guy was a toolbox from the start. Anyway, there's all I, these. I think. Sorry, guys. I interrupted you there. No. Yes. But to build on the mediocre guys, I think that the problem is I just don't care about any of her personal life stuff. It's not even that I find them annoying, which I think they are. They are. And ostensibly supposed to be, but like I just don't care. Whereas when she's in the when she's in the workplace stuff, I care so deeply about it all. You know what I mean? Like I I don't know what was I literally like wept at this movie yesterday. I got so emotional. What part? When when Stanley Tucci like when they screw him over and they don't give him that job and he's like, she'll pay me back one day. I was like weeping. And then when Andy calls Emily and like gives her the clothes from Paris Fashion Week, she's like, it would be a huge imposition. But I guess I can do it. I was like, oh, I like care so deeply about them all. But then yeah. I just don't – it's not It's not even like in the Nate scenes, I'm I'm not even annoyed at him. I'm just like bored. I'm bored when she's hanging out with the mentalist. I just want this movie to be have all those scenes cut and only be <laughs> the runway stuff because I think it does such a good job of getting you invested in Stanley Tucci, Emily Blunt, Meryl Streep, Anne Hathaway and all of their little dynamics. And then I just don't understand – the rest i think you're absolutely right that in the way in which someone's journalistic job in a standard rom-com is sort of phoned in just because functionally they need a job i think you're right that the people making this movie um i I, uh, i'm not sure how you pronounce her name the writer aileen Mm -hmm. brosh mckenna yeah i think aileen brosh mckenna yeah aileen brosh mckenna as a writer and dave franklin's the director and the artist they were interested in this workplace dynamic and then i guess you needed a romance because it. I mean, I understand the function it serves in the plot, actually. It gives her a conflict about whether or not to to go, whether or not she's giving something up. Oh, and her dad. That was the other one. That's the third guy who I'm like, just yeah, let dad. her, let her, don't don't be such a bitch about the, her taking a call, man. It's also like she's been working there for less than a year. Like, she's only, I get that sometimes when you start a new job, the first couple of months are the most stressful because you're figuring things out. I feel like everyone needs to chill out. Yeah, if you're in a toxic job for multiple months and it's mm-hmm. not going well, that's one thing. But like, oh, my new job is stressful. Well, maybe that's part of being yeah. an adult. Like, <laughs> they, yeah. they do give her like wild, some of the conflicts they the thing is that the conflicts of like, of Miranda selling out Nigel is so compelling and paints such a good and realistic portrait of why this industry is toxic. Mm-hmm. And that you totally get why Andy, who is a very principled character, would not want to be in an environment where selling out your friends is the norm. Yes. So that argument for why she shouldn't be in this world is so strong. The yeah. argument of like, you're missing out on your friend's events is just patently not true because she go to Tracy Toms's gallery opening which you couldn't do if you were busy i'm like she made time for this friend this is not a problem we're regularly seeing her and nate have little date nights together like this is not an issue this is not she's not andy's not being corrupted by the side of just being too busy she's being corrupted because like the power hierarchies are inherently toxic yeah i think you're and i think that that final that final i'd forgotten kind of what the twist is 
where you think Miranda's about to be ousted and then she's pulled a kind of like a it honestly functions like the final scene of the godfather when it's like well you know what i did i actually ordered them all to be assassinated on the same day and she reveals like no i'm just yeah it is brutal and and nigel is a a character with great pathos i mean from the beginning i mean he the way he functions in the plot and the way that he is not initially sympathetic to her but when she goes to him and he talks about like you you don't appreciate the artists who have published in here he he doesn't give her anything for free but he has this clear sense of uh his own sort of philosophy of the value of the work when i was watching last night i'm very happy we're doing this for our emily blunt miniseries but part of me was like oh maybe we should have saved this for a stanley tucci miniseries because he is so good in this movie like this is it's just such a good performance it is a really it's a really it's a fantastic character in the way that he has this his his like particular brand of cynicism that just feels i don't know very cosmopolitan new yorky and yeah. also like a certain generation like like a boomer generation of you know gay men that have been sort of batted around by the world i mean I, that's not explicitly part of it but i think that's part of the coding of his character and the way that he functions as a mentor i mean it it's funny it reminds me of in a completely different texture of his performance in captain america the first avenger yeah. Where he plays a similar character, except he's a, you know, Jewish scientist. A mild-mannered German yeah, <laughs> scientist. Another great character. Um, but it is a it is a great it is a great performance, and the way that he takes that kind of blow when they're sitting at the benefit lunch at the end, and he realizes that he's been sort of thrown under the wheels for Miranda, and she didn't even warn him. You know what I mean? So like brutal. she didn't never even do it until she was up at there at the speech. Like he's excited about it. It's like, ooh, that really got me. Yeah. So there are behaviors. It's funny because there are kind of two behaviors that we see from Miranda, and one is just being like, I demand the utmost respect at all times. And I think we can kind of look at that and say, given the way that the world treats working women, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's fine. That's fine behavior. She also does have some of the legitimately sinister behaviors. And it is after, I just remember this when talking about when she's with her dad and she's trying to get flown home from Miami and no one is flying anyone from home from Miami. And the speech she gives the next morning where she basically yeah. says, here's why I hired you. And I'm very disappointed in you. Yeah. And she makes She's like, Andy I wanted cry. to hire the smart fat girl instead of the usual type of girl that I hire. And I hit pause then and I, I turned in when I was like, this is actually the first legitimately toxic boss behavior. And this is the one where I said, in a completely different world, this reminds me of the, the shit that kind of drove me nuts at the mm-hmm. job that I keep alluding to is this, this, I'm like, just, you could tell me I've done a bad job, but please don't pretend like... We have been friends, and you had put some faith in me, and now I've personally hurt you. Like, you're my boss. Okay, this is just turning into a therapy session for me, and then we don't need to do <laughs> we don't need to do that. But there are there are a number of like genuinely toxic behaviors in here, but you're right. They all come from how people are treating each other inside this world, basically between, as I say, the sort of diamond shaped negotiations between Miranda, Nigel, Emily, and Andy. Mm-hmm. 
We should also clarify that the Emily you reference speaking to is your partner Emily, not Emily Blunt or the Emily that Emily Blunt plays in this film, which I think will be. Well, I don't think I will be calling Emily Blunt just Emily. Like you okay, called you Christian Bale. You won't be Bale doing Christian. what I did with Christian. Okay. That's right. I won't be doing that because <laughs> You'll be more formal. Because yes, I have a real world. I turned to Emily. I must have said, didn't I? Say that? Did I say yeah, that a second ago? That, yeah. Okay, we should clarify. As I've said before, my real world partner's name is Emily. Our focus's name is Emily, and yet her <laughs> character's name is Emily. This is a classic millennial problem that I have mm-hmm. in that like half of my friends are named Emily. Yeah. Like I have, th- I would say three people I text with most are all named Emily and two of them are an Emily M. And so it's a real, I'm, I'm familiar with the conundrum we're in now of having to navigate a multiple Emily yeah. situation. And believe me, so is Emily, <laughs> whichever one I'm referring to now. Uh, maybe I should call her M, the one that I live with. I don't know. Sure. Or, the, or we'll just start calling Emily Blunt M. We'll just get more casual with each mini series we do. I don't know what I'll, <laughs> what I'll do. But the the sort of, yeah, the dynamics between the four of them and the way in which they move around with Meryl Streep at the pinnacle, no matter what. Yeah. I think that maybe with this film in particular and sort of these like, whatever we want to call them, chick flick, girl movies, rom-com slash rom-com adjacent things. There's Mm -hmm. often a tendency to want to apply simple morals to them to be like, okay, the point of like, you know, this movie is be yourself. And the point of this movie is like, be a girl boss. And I actually think sometimes the movies are less simplistic than people want to have the reading of. Like, I don't think that this movie, I don't think the Devil Wears Prada is necessarily saying like, Miranda Priestly, fierce girl boss, like be just like her. Mm-hmm. I think the movie is just sort of saying like, this dynamic exists. You know what I mean? And it, there's an ambiguity to the ending of of the movie where it feels right that Andy has left. Mm-hmm. But this was the other part that made me cry when Miranda gives her the recommendation that the journalist should hire yes. her. Um, but that that's also nice. I think it can be both. Like, I do think we are supposed to see, like, this world is toxic. Miranda is a toxic part of it. But it's probably also true that Miranda is no more toxic than a lot of male bosses that exist. So, sh- And maybe even less toxic than a lot of them, honestly. So it's sort of like, probably she is being unfairly punished with a double standard where men it's not like it feels like they've aged out of their jobs in the way it feels like they're trying to force her out of runway but i also don't think the movie's like and that means she's a hero and everyone should aim to be just like her and i think the ambiguity of the movie is good and it is a sort of a tragedy that like nigel and uh, the character of emily are going to be still in that world and you know who knows if they'll keep flourishing within it but then it's also really sweet that miranda wrote the recommendation and it's sort of all these things at once and I think the movie is smart enough for as like fluffy as it looks. I think it's smart enough that it can sort of sustain all of those readings anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it has that in moments like like Nigel saying, she'll pay me back one day. And Andy says, you sure about that? And he says, no, but I can hope. I have to hope or something like that. Yeah. It's so sad. And it's all kind of wrapped up in there because as you say, like, you just you just don't know what will what will be his fate. Maybe she will. Maybe I don't know, it does a good job of asking asking questions there. Mm-hmm. 
I do want to shout out, we mentioned her before, but Aline Brosh McKenna, who wrote the screenplay for this, also wrote um, 27 Dresses, which is much more of a conventional rom-com, but mm-hmm. a movie that, that I secretly love a lot. Ah. And then she also co-created um, the CW's musical series, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is like phenomenal. Oh, and that... talk about a series that like takes what could be simple premises and sort of simple archetypes. Yeah. And cliches and like completely turns them on their head and subverts them. And it's just an incredibly smart. Like if people have not seen that series, I cannot recommend it enough. It's so good. It finished its run. So I don't know where it's streaming now, but you can watch the whole thing. It's great throughout. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that I, that's a show that really shows it. out how how smart um, McKenna is as a screenwriter. Yeah. Ned, yeah. I think you'll like it. Because it's a musical. You like musicals? I do. I really love musicals. And... We should find a way to talk about a musical, although I will tell you we're not going to talk about a certain one of Emily Blunt's musicals on this, because I don't care for it. <laughs> um, we might talk about another one, but It is true not. that Emily Blunt is a singer, not a talent she shows off in uh, The Devil Wears Prada, no. but is part of her sort of like, she's... She's such an interesting one to tackle after Christian because in a way I think she's the opposite. Like she's very good at being a movie star and a performer and like yes. being fun on talk shows and yes, stuff. And absolutely. that's like not the skill set that Christian Bale has at all. No. No, when you talked about the people when you talked in I think I think it was in our fighter episode about him sort of maybe resenting the the role of having to go beyond the talk shows and you know, she does it really well. I mean, I mm-hmm. you, you you shared with me a link of her doing the Vogue 73 questions, which to me is the kind of zenith of celebrities charmingly performing themselves. I hate the 73 questions series. <laughs> They're weirdly stressful to watch I, every time I forget how stressful they are. They're stressful. And I think I, I, this also connects with, you know, sort of why I maybe have fallen off the Oscars. I, 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 I just find it sort of cringe inducing to watch actors perform as a version of themselves although it is not as stressful when someone's really good at it and i found the the emily blunt one bearable Mm -hmm. it's bearable it has a lot of this is the series if you haven't seen it it's just like very weird format where vogue does like a long one take like interview obviously very pre-staged and rehearsed like interview where they're asking they're asking a celebrity 73 questions as said celebrity like walks through an environment sometimes their home in this case the vogue offices and like sort of does activities throughout and it's like a weird mix of being like supposed to be very natural feeling but obviously deeply rehearsed and yeah they can be very strange but i agree that the emily blunt one which references the devil wears prada a lot because she's in vogue yes is is on the more fun side of what that format can be yes because i think that she actually does get some little genuine off-the-cuff moments that show her being again maybe now i'm just a, a mark again but being what seems like a true unaffected human mannerism in a an improvised moment which i enjoy there what i hate are those moments where it's like somebody walks up at a predetermined time and is like hey mm-hmm. emily could you take a look at this for me I hate those things. It's very um, uncomfortable. Hey, this Taylor. reminded me of uh, something else that I was thinking about. I think particularly because this is an Anne Hathaway movie, I think what's impressive about 
how Emily Blunt has navigated her career is that there has never really been like a backlash against her. Yes. Like she emerges from this movie so beloved Mm -hmm. and then I feel like just remains beloved and keeps being beloved in multiple different genres. And I think for a lot of celebrities in general, but certainly women in particular with Anne Hathaway maybe being like the ultimate example, there just becomes a point where people just decide they hate you and you have to go away for a while. And certainly, I mean, Anne Hathaway has explicitly said that that's what happened to her. Like, she got the sense that people didn't like her, and she just needed to stop being in movies and stop doing publicity and, like, go away. And then she could come back. I think somebody like Jennifer Lawrence is sort of in the middle of experiencing this now. Like, it's a common arc for women, like, ingenues to go through. And I think it's very impressive. It's an impressive example of, like, Emily Blunt managing her movie star persona and her career in a way that she was able to at least so far and like fingers crossed will continue to avoid having that happen to her yeah you have to walk a very fine line because i think that with anne hathaway it was this to say to move quickly past the obvious thing which is just that it seems the world is always looking for an excuse to chop a successful woman down it seemed like in the way in which, in addition to being an actor, you have to perform a version of yourself, it just really backfired with her in the most extreme way in that mm-hmm. the, the the truth of the matter is you never get to know a celebrity genuinely. All you get to know is a personality that they put up. And then for whatever reason, with Anne Hathaway, people really seized onto that seeming disingenuous to them. And it, it kind of reminds me of... A theory of celebrities that when people get published for getting plastic surgery, it just means they had a bad plastic surgery experience yeah. because actually everyone has it. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's kind of a similar thing, I think, with Anne Hathaway where everyone is showing you a manicured version of themselves. But somehow when she did it, the world said, this is a manicured version of you, you fake faker. And that's kind of a shame. I mean, I'm not an Anne Hathaway stan by any means. I don't really count her among my favorite actors, but I do think that it was deeply unfair the way that she got kind of harried out of Hollywood for... And I'm glad that kind of seems to be over. Like, that seems like she's over that hump of her career. People are, like, back on the... The Anne Hathaway train now. Is she? Which I think is good. I mean, she made the witches. I think so. I think that, yeah. I think she's kind of come back and people are into her. She, I don't know if she's come back with, like, a project people are obsessed with. But mm-hmm. I think her, people kind of realize, like, what she went through is unfair. And yeah. At least in my, like, little film Twitter world, I don't know how much that represents the general population. Probably not at all. <laughs> but in the little bubble that I'm in, I feel like people are into her again. I, I hope so. Can I take us down a complete tangential rabbit hole for like two seconds because this is driving me crazy how does andy's friend group all know each other (laughs) (laughs) i sweat i spent so here's here's what we have so i we should also mention andy's character is a northwestern grad we both went to northwestern so that's a little bit of a i don't know connection there so we know she she seems to me like a recent grad Mm -hmm. and yet she's already married or not married she's living with a boyfriend who I'm assuming 
went to culinary school because at one point he references something about culinary school. Oh. Northwestern does not have a culinary school. That would imply that they didn't met in college. Tracy Toms's character, who's her friend that runs the art gallery, mentions that they've been friends for 16, 16 years. years. Yeah, what so the? So this is not a college friend, oh. but Anne Hathaway is from Ohio. So are, did she and Tracy Toms grow up in Ohio together? Did they go to this? Maybe they both went to Northwestern and then also then moved to New York together. They're just like lifelong best friends. But if they're lifelong best friends, it feels like their their relationship should be deeper than it is. How is she already living with Nate? Like I get New York's expensive. I think maybe that pushes people to sort of like move in quicker than you would in somewhere like a Chicago. But it's like, okay, if she's like a year out of school, like is this literally her first job out of school? And then she has not been in New York for very long. So like she's already met this guy that's in culinary school and then and then they're living together or maybe tracy toms is like the key to it all and she organized this friend group and maybe tracy toms went to school in uh new york and like she knew nate and i don't know do you have any thoughts on (laughs) that uh okay my thoughts uh i i was gonna say caroline this is the kind of thinking that is why i love reading your writing like your extremely too deep dive into the chronology of the mama oh i'll take a deep dive Mm, uh but i have to say if you just spoke for a minute about this, I followed it for the first 30 seconds and then my brain just just started saying, it's phoned in, it's phoned in. They just look like young people. <laughs> They're just young people and they were all supposed to have gone to, it doesn't make any sense. It's just like, oh, you know, she's got friends that she gets pizza and wine with, but they want to take her cell phone away from her. I don't know. They don't. They don't care. I don't know. What I would like to say is if, dear listeners, any of you have really strong thoughts on this, please email us rollcalling at gmail.com because clearly I'm well down the rabbit hole and I need to know how this friend group came to be and how she and Nate are already living together. We need your answers. We need the at answers. At rollcalling.com. We will send you. We will record it's not your at rollcalling.com. No. Our Twitter account is just at rollcalling. Sorry. <laughs> Rollcalling at gmail.com. I'm there falling you go. apart. I'm falling apart. Okay. Well, thank you for indulging my tangent. Certainly. What are some other tangents on this? Um, the specter of sexual harassment lingers over this movie a little bit. Like low-key workplace harassment between Stanley Tucci and Anne Hathaway. And I feel weird mm. not acknowledging it. Oh, I did not. Can you speak more on that? I think he would just like- You're talking about a real world thing that happened real or something world within thing. the film. Okay, okay. No, no, it was, a, it was a real world thing. It was kind of that he would like, I don't know, like touch her boobs or stuff mm. like in a, in a semi-playful way. Yes. Probably in a, it's 2006, I'm straight, but I'm playing a gay guy. I feel um, emboldened to mess around. You're a young yes. actress. And it seems like they are- able to work together i mean they're working together again and they work together again in the witches they it seems like she is not pursuing it it's just something i wish that stanley tucci would make a apology for i see i but didn't even know this happened so thank you for bringing it up he's one of those know yeah. more about i don't know he seems like he's not he's not really in the in the crosshairs he's a he's he's he doesn't seem like he's cancelable he's so beloved yeah he has a it beloved is interesting personality and maybe he's not the right like person to hinge this on, but it is interesting which people have bad stories come out about them and it sticks and which don't. Jeff Goldblum, Mandy Patinkin, Stanley Tucci are all kind of three like nothing insanely appalling, but kind of like bad behavior in the world of acting. Yeah. And uh, they're just- But have sort of managed to escape the- 
public backlash to it. Yes, through a through a combination of being cute in their public appearances and never acknowledging it. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate that you actually like one sort of one sort of way of coping is to never acknowledge. Like one one school of thought says a really good apology is the best way to revive your career from mm-hmm. accusations of misconduct. But another school of thought is you can also just never acknowledge it. And in some yeah. cases it will go away. Which, yeah, you're right. Does seem to be true because I didn't even know about it. Yeah. So, yeah. You're um, not incorrect there. Here's my other thing that was on my mind about this movie. This, The Departed, and The Last King of Scotland are all 2006 movies. Mm-hmm. And I feel that this was in an era. I also include Gangs of New York 2002 and then uh, Breach with uh, Ryan Philippe, Ryan Philippi, however you say that, mm-hmm. and Chris Cooper. I say Philippi, but now I'm doubting if that's correct. And then The Nanny Diaries with ScarJo and Laura Linney. This is this little crop of movies that I put all in the same category, where it's basically like a beautiful young person falls under the tutelage of a volatile and extremely high status senior actor of like more of the baby boomer generation and they are in some ways kind of like a, an interloper in this world you know they're an undercover cop or they're uh you know uh, they they're a journalism student who disdains fashion and they slowly grow to respect this volatile older person but also fear them and then they see their humanity but they ultimately kill them figuratively or literally or choose to escape their world and Mm -hmm. i that story plays out in all six of those movies and it was like it was what the like meryl streep forrest whitaker jack nicholson generation was just doing at that time. I'm not sure whose fantasy that is. If it's a fantasy of that generation of being being this like powerhouse who then in most cases was like too too strong to live or of being the young person who learns from them and gets their tools but then destroys them. Okay, in the same way that my monologue about Andy's friend group was maybe me going on a real deep tangent, I think you've just had an equivalent. Yeah. I have to say, we were, I looked at the Google Doc that you made for this episode and yes. seeing, again, let me remind the listeners of this list of movies. Gangs of New York, yes. The Devil Wears Prada, The Departed, The Last King of Scotland, Breach, which I've never heard of, and The Nanny Diaries. These are the movies same that movie. Ned, I love this for you. All same things movie, are the same movie. Six times. Same and then movie. second, my second point, is this Treasure Island? Isn't that the like famous Treasure Island arc of like, <gasps> you're a person that I'm looking up to, but then you, but then I don't like you, but then also maybe I do still like you? Well, you might be onto something because you probably know that Treasure Island is one of my favorite books ever. I love Treasure Island. I've read it several times. Um, do you feel like this fit, that fits that arc? I think this does in a lot of ways fit that arc. Although what's missing from... Well, but there's no beautiful fashion montage in. Uh, there's no treasure, beautiful fashion montage. No, there maybe island. there is. Actually. I'm called a treasure planet. Yeah, well that <laughs> that too. But yeah, I actually think you're really onto something. That's the Long John Silver gym model. This volatile mentorship. I'm glad we both had very <laughs> interesting tangents to take. 
Cycle <laughs> two episode. is off to a highly theoretical and esoteric start. As probably our podcast will continue to be. Two other little like visual things in Devil Wars Prada I want to shout out. I love the montage to Madonna's Vogue where we're seeing Andy, you know, try out all her fashionable outfits. And they do a really cool thing where she's walking down the street and each time, you know, she walks behind a car or a pole, it's like a new outfit. Like that is the kind of stuff. This is the kind of stuff that like when somebody does an impressive action scene in an action movie, everyone's Mm -hmm. like, oh, that was so amazing. Like this fashion montage, I get the same thrill of that. And I think that that is a thrill Mm -hmm. that is sometimes looked down upon. It's like, oh, that's just like a girly rom-com thing. But really with a cool fashion montage and a cool action scene, it's just like cool visceral visuals. And if what is cinema for, if not for (laughs) cool action scenes and beautiful fashion montages? Yeah. Completely. So I love that sequence. I also love in the sequence with the famous Cerulean sweater speech that it's filmed handheld, which the movie doesn't really do elsewhere. And all of a sudden, it's like you're in the Hurt Locker or something. Like that scene is so stressful. And the handheld, like it's very subtle, but I think it's such a smart, like directorial, cinemagraphic, cinematography choice. To film it that way, like it really just adds to the stress. And then my like favorite line delivery of Meryl being like, "Why is no one ready?" I just love that moment. Yeah. I lo- like that. I mean, we've like barely talked about Meryl, but like, what? It's like we just take for granted how amazing this is. But the, again, the thought to just like come up with this character, do the voice this way, mm-hmm. the sort of look of it all. You know, we would have been well within our rights to save this movie for a Meryl miniseries, and it would have been incredibly well-deserved. Yeah, and I think the only reason that we may not get to a Meryl miniseries is because we're interested in, I think, shining the light in some places, uh, having some new conversations. And so much has been said, and in many cases said so brilliantly, about Meryl, who is, the hype is earned. She's a powerhouse. She's un believably skilled at what she does and it's crazy how many times in her career she kind of like hits again you know like this is seen as like a big moment for her but she what was it was this her i think you mentioned this stat to me her 14th oscar nomination yeah (laughs) that's this is like bananas it is bananas and this is also an interesting turning point because she had been you know like so well respected for so long in her career but Mm -hmm. this is like what launches her into doing like big mainstream comedies which then becomes like a big part of her career too she does mama mia after this and she does like the nancy myers it's complicated and this sort of like launches her i think in a big way as like a a big mainstream blockbuster draw in a way that I don't think she had been before this. But now it's like, that's so much a part of her persona. It's almost hard to remember that again, in the way I can't remember the first time this, like I can't remember before this movie existed. I can't remember before this was sort of Meryl's, you know, part of Meryl's appeal. It is, but the the performance is not overrated at all. It, and not overhyped. It is a phenomenal phenomenal Meryl performance and every single choice she makes what was what was your was that your favorite line on this rewatch I was gonna ask what was your favorite line this rewatch why is no one ready um yes I like that one because it just feels so tossed off Mm -hmm. I think my favorite line that I had no memory of was is it impossible to find a lovely slender female paratrooper am I reaching for the stars here I think not (laughs) 
<laughs> oh wait, no. I thank you for. I just remembered my actual favorite line. It's in the that one's great, but in the montage where she's tossing the coats, mm-hmm. there's something she's like. Find me that piece of paper that I had in my hand yesterday morning. And I'm like, oh, I have like been in an office where things like that are requested. And you're like, what planet is this person living on where this is the thing that I would be able to do for them? Yeah. Just the demand of like, oh, you know that piece of paper I had in my hand at one point yesterday? Bring me yeah. that. So that's a good, I love that line. And the way that the way that the character of Emily just hangs on all of those things and yeah it's just trying so hard it's so delicious i also had forgotten that towards the end of the famous cerulean monologue she like andy turns back to emily for support and emily's looking at her like yeah bitch you fucked up big time <laughs> you're dead and i like it she does emily blunt does such a fine line between she's never like actively preventing andy from doing her job do you know what i mean like she is this is sort of the appeal of miranda too like there is an element of genuine mentorship Mm -hmm. not you know specifically trying to screw you over but also not taking pleasure in your success or wanting to lift you up in any way Mm -hmm. and then it is really sweet when there's that um gala they go to and they have to they have to remind miranda who everyone is and and emily forgets and andy is the one that reminds her and you almost think like in that moment Emily's going to be mad at her, mm-hmm. but she's like so relieved and she's like, thank you. I'm like, oh, that's yes. really nice. Like they have, you feel like they have actually formed a real friendship there beyond the sort of like weird power dynamics they had at the beginning. That's a nice moment. Yes. It's, it is interesting. It's a, it's an interesting little parallel where Andy at the forefront of the film is trying to earn Miranda's respect because her whole, you know, life sort of depends upon it. But as a subplot, she's also trying to earn Emily's respect, mm-hmm. not in a way where it's very high stakes. And when Emily is mean to her, she kind of just like lets it roll right off of her because you can yeah. tell she just knows it doesn't matter that much. Which is trying to earn it in the way in which sometimes you just meet someone in a setting and they do not like you and they do not take to you, and you just kind of persist. Like mm, I'm going to get through to you eventually. It's it it makes it a really fun relationship as it goes along, but it is really. I'd forgotten how many times, as you say, she doesn't actively hinder her success, but it's funny how many times and to what extent she refuses to support her or sort of delights in her misery as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great, uh, I mean, a great performance and how great that it became a breakout in the way it did. Because I think sometimes people give performances like this and it doesn't always lead to the sort of like career success that Emily Blunt has been able to have. You're absolutely right. In some cases, unfortunately, the power brokers of Hollywood just draw the same conclusion that I mentioned drawing as a 16-year-old, which is this is just who this person is. And she kind of exists as like, oh, you know, she pops up in this movie or that movie or that movie as the bitchy friend. But most people won't be able to remember her name. Like the Judy Greer path of that's what you do. Sure. Do this in all sure. our rom-coms yes. from now on. Judy Greer might be soon having her moment or starting to have her moment amongst we'll a that. small small group but for the for most of the world yeah judy greer is probably just a familiar face from rom-coms but that was not to be emily blunt's destiny oh no so after this look at the early part of emily blunt's career next week we're going to jump forward in time we're going to jump very far forward in time to one of her most recent major successes one of her leading roles and it's brand new sequel that is a quiet place and a quiet place part two So if you're listening to this Devil Wears Prada episode on the day that we released it, then A Quiet Place Part 2 has come out today. So we do not know what to expect from that movie. Congratulations to you on (laughs) 
living in being that able world. to see this <laughs> yes film. what we don't know what to expect from that movie but we are gonna rewatch a quiet place it's a rewatch for me you've seen a quiet place yeah we're gonna rewatch that uh thrilling dialogue sparse monster movie we're going to watch its follow-up and we will be here going on our deep dives who knows what tangents are in store in the quiet place universe but uh get weird what is it what is scribbled on john krasinski's wall it's like how do they it's like sound (laughs) sound question and he's just like circled it or something yeah yeah we'll have to we'll do take like a screenshot of that board and just we'll break down every element of what's on there that's us roll calling is produced and recorded by us ned baker and caroline cedar our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling or email us RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. We'll be back next week to talk A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place Part 2. Until then, that's all.